All right, uh, we're going we're gonna to pick up in Acts chapter 6 tonight. And uh, now, before we begin in Acts chapter 6, I'm going to open with prayer in a moment, but I wanted to refresh your memory that at this point, there's, um, gosh, 8,120 disciples minus uh, Ananias and Sapphira, so 8,118 um, and uh, you, you look at the church, grow, uh, church growth seminars and, you know, one of Jesus' disciples has already committed suicide. That's Judas. That's not a way to grow a church. Uh, two of his disciples were caught lying and the Holy Spirit struck him dead. Not a great way to grow the church. Um, and, and yet the church continues to grow. And we, we studied last week that they had everything in common. They, they sold their possessions and gave to everyone as they had need. We went through that whole picture that it's not communism, it was communism. Um, it's, it's fascinating how generous the government can be with other people's money. And, and they tend to say that, you know, this is, they try to, Jesus, as we studied on Sunday, when Jesus said, the poor you'll have with you always, he wasn't dismissing the poor. He was just simply saying, in a fallen world where sin exists, people step outside the commandments of the Lord and poverty comes. The, the Lord is the author of all blessing. And, and that's why he created the Levitical law to protect private property that when you obey the 10 commandments you'll flourish you'll benefit and uh, when you don't you're going to be impoverished you're going to struggle um and and so with the impoverishment and the struggling jesus said the poor you're going to have with you always but people like to use that as judas did as an excuse to try to milk money out of people and uh, judas you know said that the the offering of mary could have been sold for you know uh a year's wages and gone to feed the poor, but he didn't care. He was taking the money out of the bag anyways to rip everyone off. Well, what you're seeing here in the book of Acts is a genuine generosity. And it's amazing how we can judge the church and say the church isn't generous. But when we look at our own pocketbook and our own checkbook, we're not generous. We tend to complain at the lack of generosity of others while not examining our own life. And and yet here, this was, this was a picture of the Holy Spirit taking hold of the entirety of the church, that there was a joy, a transparency. Um, we love to, I, I tell you, people come and, and have needs all the time at the church. And, and you sit down with them, and oftentimes they'll say, you know, I'm in a hotel room, and I, I, I'm going to be kicked out this afternoon. And, and my thought is, you know, your, your lack of responsibility is not my urgency. I'm sorry you're going to be kicked out, but let's go through a few things. Is there anyone I can call to confirm your story? No, they won't give you any numbers. And uh, where did you work before? Are there any no- references that we can find? They haven't invested in the church. This is a family. It's a family. And, and yet, you know, just the dismissal of the church that we don't care. Well, we do care, but we're, we're more concerned than your physical need. Than, we're, we're more concerned with your spiritual need than your physical. We want to address the physical need, but in all reality, you could care less about your spiritual need, and, and you're more concerned about your physical need. And we go through this in the church back and forth. And here you're going to see where uh, it's, it's about to split the church. The church is going to be split over uh, complaining and grumbling and murmuring over a lack of provision for a certain segment of the church and, uh, and how the early apostles dealt with it. And, and it's going to open up. At this point, the scriptures are saying that the Lord is adding to their numbers daily. We're going to see that change in chapter 6. And then at the, end, uh, at the end of the passage we'll be studying, it's going to change even more. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on the study of his word. Lord, we ask that you'd lead us into all truth. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd guide us and bless us. We pray, Lord, that you'd encourage and strengthen. Pray that you'd exhort, that you'd convict, that you would transform, that you'd do all these things in accordance with the riches in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in those days when the number of disciples was what? 
Are, are we in the same chapter? I'm sorry. <laughs> chapter 6, Acts, book of Acts, chapter 6. Let's try that again. Now, in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, uh, New King James Version, multiplying. So instead of adding to their numbers daily, it's multiplying. So this is, you know, a, a addition and multiplication. Now, there's been a little bit of subtraction with Ananias and Sapphira. And they're going to be those that are going to pretend themselves to be very godly, and they're going to be able to have the Christians speak, and they're going to pray eloquently, and they're going to do all those things. But in, in a lot of cases, a lot of folks you see, those are Ananias and Sapphira's in some respects, and, and, and there's, there's something that's just amiss. There's just something off. And, and so for the most part, there's addition and multiplication. Uh, there'll be small aspects of, of subtraction. And I, I love the song. Um, it, it's a great old classic hymn. I don't know if you've ever heard it. Blessed subtraction, you are now gone. Have you ever heard that one? It's one, it's one of my favorites. It's, I'm kidding. There's, there's sometimes where, you know, uh, the Bible says, mark those who cause division. Mark them. Have nothing to do with them. They're, they're just, they're contrary. Uh, I was sharing last week maybe where, you know, I'm sitting on the city council and there's committees uh, that, that citizens interview to be a part of that deal with business of the city. They make recommendations to the council and we interview them. And you meet somebody, this is contrary. And I, I turned to the person who oversees the board and I said, is that a person you'd, you'd want to sit in the board with? And they go, no, not really. But I, I didn't know you were asking my opinion. Yeah, I want to know your opinion. I, don't, I wouldn't want to sit on a board with a person like that. I don't mind anyone having a, an opposing view. I, I, I like that. But when you're just contrary, the sky's blue. No, it's gray. It's, well... Here it says that uh, and those are the ones you want to subtract, but in this case, you see it multiplying. And, and before a, a bush is going to bloom and produce much fruit, sometimes it needs to be pruned, right? Hello? You've got to take out the dead branches to make it work. So now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint. And by the way, the, the idea of complaint is uh, a murmuring. It's where they, it, it's, the Greek word is, Anyone who, who uh, didn't speak Greek sounded like they were mumbling, murmur, murmuring, and uh, complaining. It's a great word, uh, the translation murmur, murmur, murmur. And then you, you can walk up on people who are murmuring. You walk up, go, oh, hi, praise God, how are you? And you know exactly what's going on. Well, they were murmuring. What is murmuring? Murmuring is a closed session where you're, you're sowing seeds of discord, you're sowing seeds of cancer to spread through the body. What does the Bible say in relation to a healthy church? That you, you, you walk in the light as he is in the light. You, 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 fungus only grows in darkness. It has to be a contained area, but when you bring it in the light, it dies. And, you know, oftentimes with the staff, I tell them, you know, if, if somebody comes to me and says, you know, there's a number of folks that are, who are they? Well, I'm not at liberty to, well, just tell me who they are. I'll go talk with them. Is it you in particular? Well, it's not me. It's other. Well, then have them come talk to me. And, and in the staff, I tell them there's no secrets. It's not going to do us any good to hide behind somebody else to murmur your cons- concerns. We, we, we're family. You address it. It's not like I'm going to send my, my, my daughter to go talk to my son it, it, you, and, and pretend that I'm not the one complaining. You, you address it, it and, and Matthew 18 is a perfect illustration of it. If you have an issue uh, against your brother, you go to that brother. And, and what's the purpose of going to your brother? To win your brother, 
to win them, not to, not to win the fight, not to win the war, not to win the argument, but, but to win their heart. God wants us to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And there's a lot of folks, the way you're wired is you like to avoid confrontation. Well, that doesn't work. You have to address it. And if you don't, it, it, it turns into a fungus, it spreads. And so there's murmuring that is uh, arising in the midst of the multiplication. And, and in the course that I've been a minister, there's a sweet season in the life of the church where things are going great and all of a sudden there'll just be a, uh, a, an enemy sent destruction that, that seeks to, to create division and murmuring and, and struggle. And you, you have to address it. You have to call it out. And, and, and this is what's happening. So watch how they deal with this. Now, this is, this is an awful one. This, is, this has all the ramifications are all, I, I should say, all of the ingredients for a really awesome church split. Um, there rose a complaint, a murmuring against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Now, the Hebrews were Jews that were born and raised in Israel. They spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. The Hellenists were folks that during the diaspora, they had been spread throughout the known world. They all spoke Greek. They had traveled back to this location, back to Jerusalem, maybe for a high holy day or one of the feasts. Uh, In a lot of cases, it was elderly couples that were in the outskirts of the Roman Empire. They came back to Jerusalem because they knew that their this was the, the last portion of their life, and they wanted to have a sepulcher where they'd be buried in Jerusalem, um, as, as was tradition. And so um, in a lot of cases, these elderly couples would move back to Jerusalem wanting to get a good burial spot, and they would take their retirement with them. And then in most cases, as it is even today, the wives outlive the husbands, and so you have widows that are on a fixed income. They're struggling and uh, and so you have Hebrews, there's a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. So the, the Greek speakers were upset at the, the Hebrew speakers. And, and the, these Hebrew Jews, these Aramaic and Hebrew-speaking Jews were uh, indigenous, I guess is the best way I can describe it, to the area. The Hellenists were, were transplants. And, and so, you know, we, we can trace our roots back to the daughters of the American Revolution, and you're, a, you know, a newcomer, and we'll maybe let you in as an American. And, and it, you know, America is the only nation on the face of the earth where if you live in China and you go to China, you'll never be Chinese. If you, if you change your citizenship in Japan, you'll never be Japanese. If, if you change your citizenship in any country of the world, you'll never be French. You'll never be English. But in America, you're an American, uh, here they were looking, well, you're not one of us. These, th- there was a prejudice. There was this, uh, a social, societal, anthropological prejudice that was, was there between the Hebrew Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. And their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Now let me just share with you the daily distribution of food. This goes back to the Old Testament requirements that they would care for these. But one of the things that you're going to see in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy 5, is you're going to see that Especially in the church, people think that it's the church's responsibility to take care of family members or people who are struggling. If you have the ability to work and you're not working, it's not the church's problem. And if you have family members, that's, that's the responsibility of your family. In a lot of cases, when we meet folks and we start to do an interview process to help them, we find that they've disenfranchised themselves from their family. They're contrary from their family. They're, they're, they're living in disobedience and they want the church to bless their life. And, and, and that's the hardest thing is you've got to get to the truth to be able to help. You know what's easy is you're driving along, you see somebody at a street corner with a sign, you hand them money. You have no idea what you've done. 
If you want to be compassionate, you have to step into the life of that person and find out what is going on in relation to their life because we've been entrusted as stewards of what God has given us. A lot of times I'll find people that want to bring their, their projects to us. Uh, they think compassion is seeing somebody uh, and then saying, will the church fix it? If, if you have compassion in that regard, God's called you to that. Not necessarily bring it so the church can do that. Now, at times we can huddle together. If, if there's a home that's burned down and, and there's a widow and there's children, that's a no-brainer, absolutely. We're all there to help. If there's somebody that's struggling in the church that's been a member for a long season of time and, and they're going through a Job-like experience, absolutely, we're here to help. Uh, but in a lot of cases, we have to sift through whatever it is because I remember in Fresno, there was a, a couple that just worked the system and they'd cycle through the churches and they'd give a whole story. And I remember one in particular, they came to us and they said, you know, we just talked to your neighbors down the street and they, they said that you're, you know, a pastor here and that you can help us. And we're real good friends with them. And they listed three people that I knew and I was really touched. I was a new pastor going to seminary at the time. I helped them out and came to find out when I went and later talked with them and passing these other neighbors, they didn't know who they were. They had gotten my name from the newspaper and played my name to them and gotten money and then played me with them. And well, about three years passed and they cycled back around and they didn't realize that they were sitting in the church that they'd already milked. And I'm looking at them, they didn't recognize me. And I just said, you have about five seconds to get out of my office before I call the police. And, and finally, when all the churches unified uh, and we started to work together, that just shut down in Fresno. And that's where we started to see this, this revival occurring in Fresno. Because the enemy sends folks to just drain the energy and the, the, the strength of the body of Christ there's always going to be need. There's always going to be need. But watch is how they, they delineate and they distinguish the need. They had the Hebrews and the Hellenists, and there's, there's the widows and their need being neglected by the daily distribution. So at this point, the murmuring is occurring. There is an issue. It's a perceived issue. We don't know the fullness of it, but the Hellenists are complaining that the, the, their widows are being neglected. So this is exactly what the, 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 the disciples do. And by the way, Notice as it says in verse 1, now in those days when the number of what? Disciples. They're not calling them Christians, they're calling them disciples. You're to be discipled and you're to be discipling. Who are you discipling? Uh, don't answer that, just in, in, your, in your own heart. You're pouring in and, and you're receiving. That's the body of Christ. Otherwise, if you're taking in and not giving out, you're the Dead Sea. And, and you just become so overly salty that you're... You're not worth anything. There has to be a balance, taking in and giving out, taking in and giving out. That's discipleship. And this is what causes multiplication. You take your life and pour it into somebody else. And then they pour it into somebody else. You go find someone else. So one becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes eight, 16, 32, 64, 128, all the way down the line. And so at this point, these disciples, it says in verse two, then the twelve summoned the multitudes of disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. The word desirable means it's not good. It's not, it's not the ideal situation. The one thing that God wants us to do is um, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. And in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt with man. Where the word is taught, Christ is. When you can get people out of the word of God, if we can get your life so busy that you don't have time for a, a morning devotion, that you're not in the word on a daily basis, Satan is succeeding. 
the, the, the biggest struggles in my life have always come when, when my quiet time has been affected. And so uh, the best thing that, that Satan can do to the church is to get the church away from the word. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. And so the first thing that they wanted to do is make this such a big issue that they would remove the teachers from teaching. Um, you know, the church isn't overwhelmingly large. Um, the, the, the church itself isn't at a place where the needs are so overwhelming. But you add on to it, as we've seen in the last couple months, uh, you know, pastor running for office and then being elected to office. And then I'll be leaving on Friday to go down to Mexico to do a couples retreat. And then I go back to Austin to join uh, with the Issachar training. And it makes for a busy, busy week and in Atlanta last week and took a little vacation. Uh, and then we're going to start council meetings in September. And you look and you say, well, pastor, how do you have time to do visitations? Well, quite frankly, I don't. And some of you would say, well, that, that's, you're not doing the work of the pastor. Well, no, I am. I'm, I'm teaching. That's, that's my primary gifting. I'm a preacher teacher. Um, I, I, for the most part, when I get to go visit somebody, which I have the opportunity to do periodically, uh, as the Lord moves on my heart and says, this person really needs to see you. And as the Lord speaks, I go. I get there and the person, the first thing out of their mouth is, oh, Pastor Marty's already been here. So you, you'll get somebody visiting you. It's just not going to be the senior pastor. Some of you say, well, can you officiate my wedding? It's getting to a point where, you know, I, I don't take Mondays off anymore. It used to be my day off, but now Mondays is going to be my council day. So Saturdays is it. And most people get married on a Saturday. And, um, and so folks are saying, well, why, why can't you do my wedding anymore? And there'll be times where there'll be certain weddings. The Lord will say, you need to do this and I'll do that. And, and I'm not, it's not because I'm so important. It's because you get to a place where a lot of folks are relying on you and other folks are able to take up the slack and carry that. We have 15 elders. They, they pick that up. A lot of them go and do visitations. A lot of them pray. They'll be up here to minister. We'll have folks that need follow-up, uh, home studies and the like. The word has to be centered to the work of the pastor. And the minute that you take that away, Listen, when we gather, the point that we gather is to hear from God. What does this word have to say to us as a body of believers? And so it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God to serve tables. It's not that I, I'm, I'm not supposed to serve tables. The word pastor means servant. Uh, I should set the example of how to serve. These are, these are things that are of great importance. Um, you know, th- th- this past week, someone asked me, you know, you, when you do the prayer service, you step out. And I, I said, yeah, I do. And they, you know, their question was, what do you do when you step out? And my, my comment was, I don't usually sit in a circle when there's a, during the prayer service because typically everyone starts praying for me or focusing on me and, and it's uncomfortable for me. And so I'll go somewhere else and pray. But their comment to me was, it, we enjoy your presence. And so that's like a balance. Okay, then maybe, maybe that's what I need to be doing. Those are all things that I weigh before the Lord uh, as to where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing. Oftentimes folks will say, you know, you don't spend enough time with me and I, I need my pastor to, to, to disciple me. Well, I, I've got five kids. I've got a wife. I've got a grandson. I've got a son-in-law. I've got siblings. I've got a lot of things. I've got all kinds of responsibilities. I've got a lot of people that depend on me. I, I would like to have an hour a week with each of my kids. Um, let alone any one of you in the congregation. I, quite honestly, I would love to spend time with a lot of you. Michelle and I, early on, we like to, 
try to get uh, two couples a week to go to dinner with. I, um, I do a Friday morning that's going to resume on, in September where I meet with guys that want to come on a Friday morning. So I try to avail myself, but it comes to a place where you're limited. And if it starts digging into my preparation time for study, now we're all in trouble. So it, it's this balance. And so the 12 summon the multitude. And this is the first thing they do. This is the first thing they do. They bring the concern out in the open. You know why? Because it had reached the disciples. It had reached the apostles. It had, it had murmured so much that they got wind of it and they knew, well, we got to rip this weed out at the root. And so they summoned everybody. The circle of sin is a circle of repentance. Secret sin, secret repentance, private sin, private repentance, public sin, public repentance. So they called a public meeting. And they called, they summoned the multitude of the disciples. And they said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Look, we know there's a need, but we're not going to be the ones to fulfill it. We have work to do, and, and, and this, is, this is the importance of it. By the way, this, this isn't an organization. It's an organism. It's alive. They're not organizing. They're not structuring it. They're, this, this is alive. It's living and breathing. And you see this, this, the, the church operating as a, as a, as a living organism. And they, and they point out, they say, therefore, with this understanding that we don't want to leave the word of God so that we will serve tables, but, but not at the expense of the word of God, this is what we're going to do. They said, uh, brethren, seek out among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So the first thing, and this is what we look for in elders, by the way, this is a great depiction of elders that you're going to see in the pastoral epistles. You look for an elder, and some of the things that you look for is you look for good reputation. What do other people say about him? What do other people say about him? And that doesn't take long to find out. Call their coworkers, their neighbors, their family members, their friends. And you call them, either business partners, and you ask them. And you want to find that they're of good reputation, that everyone would say a good thing about them. They may not fully agree with them, but they love the way they operate. And so they're, they're, they're men of good reputation, and they're full of the Holy Spirit. We, we, there's some people, you know they're Christians, but you wonder, you know, it, it, Christianity seems to be the exception, not the rule. They're so full, they're overflowing. And, and the picture that you see here is it's, it's, a, it's a dunamis. It's a dynamic filling of the Holy Spirit upon their lives. And they had wisdom. Where does wisdom come from, according to Proverbs? Fear the Lord. Fear of the Lord. This, this wisdom is in book learning. This wisdom is a fear of the Lord that has manifested itself in the application of God's word in the lives. They have rhema. They have a living voice from God they're operating on, as it says in, in Ephesians 6. And so these men are full of wisdom, and they appoint them over this business. And then they say, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. By the way, even if you look at Ephesians 6, where it talks about the sword of the spirit, immediately the apostle Paul combines that with prayer. The word and prayer have to go hand in hand. If this isn't a praying church, it's not a church that has effective teaching. Otherwise, all we're doing is teaching logos, which is just the intellectual dissemination of of truth as opposed to actively listening to the voice of God and how it's supposed to move. That's rhema. So you combine prayer with the word, you get rhema. You remove prayer, you get logos. You combine prayer with logos, you get rhema. Rhema is the, the living voice of God guiding and directing by his absolute inerrant 
holy word. And so their, their commitment is we have to be continually seeking God in prayer and in the ministry of the word. Now, some of you say, well, does that mean that all I spend my time doing is reading and on my knees? No, 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 I, I don't. But I probably do more than you because that's what I'm called to do. And, uh, oh, and by the way, let me add something here. Notice that it says, um, we give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Uh, there was a, an 80-year-old man that had given me an insight, um, and, and, I, and I loved it. And he did it based on Ephesians, where it says, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then it goes on to talk about prayer and combining prayer with the word of God. He transformed my devotion life. And the way he did that is, he, is I said, you know, I used to have a prayer. I said, I have a prayer list. And I was telling this man, I have a prayer list. And I go through the prayer list. And by the time I get to the word, I'm so tired. He said, Rob, prayer is important. He says, open with prayer, asking God to guide and direct you and to order your steps and to uh, um, illuminate your mind to see the scriptures. Ask him for that initial prayer, but don't go through your prayer list at that time. Ask, when you begin in prayer, ask for what you're participating in, which is a study of the word. Concentrate your prayer towards the word and, and to prepare your heart. And so I would do that, and then I'd get into the Word, and as I'm reading the Word, certain verses would jump out, and, and I would write those verses down. They would just manifest themselves, and I'd write them down. And then by the time I finished my reading, there was verses that God had impressed upon my heart in the daily reading, and then I would start my prayer list, and everyone on that prayer list, for the most part, would tie into the, to the verses that God had highlighted. And it absolutely revolutionized my quiet time in my, my time with the Lord. You open with a prayer asking God's blessing on the study of the word. Then as you read the word, he highlights verses. Then you hit your prayer list and those verses are then a- applied as rhema upon the lives of the people you've been called in the situations that you're facing. So try to apply that, it'll help you. This is what they were doing. So watch this. The saying pleased the whole multitude. That's very rare. That's very rare that you get everybody in unison. Uh, in, in a large gathering. I'm, I'm now participating in local politics. You're starting to realize that everybody's got opinions. But you know what you find is that the more transparent you are, the more transparent you are with a large body of people. Now, it's, it's hard to get people to engage in the process of, of um, public policy. To get people to a council meeting is difficult. To get people to a church meeting, that's why we'll, we'll do a congregational church meeting on a Sunday just to put things forward. But when you're dealing with large issues that have affected the whole body, I, you know, I was thinking, for example, the redevelopment in the downtown or what they're wanting to do with uh, the auto mall. I think that all of that could have been resolved had there just been a, a, an availing, an openness to say, this is what we're dealing with. And, and put it forward until there, you, you can't even ask any more questions. You've asked so many. Now, you're not going to get everything you want. You probably won't get anything you want if you're contrary. And, and if you're dead set on one thing or another and you look at the entirety as a whole and you say, okay, as a community, we're moving forward. This is what we're going to do. Some folks will say, well, I didn't get everything I wanted, but I got some of the things I wanted and I can see why this person, so we move together. Now, there's always going to be folks in there that are going to be contrary. And it's not a church, it's a community. So there's no way to apply church discipline in that respect. But in a church, you're going to have the ultimate rule of God's word and say, do we all see it? Sometimes in an elder meeting, we'll be divided, and I love Pastor Mark Schwartz will, will come up with a verse, he'll lay it down, and immediately there'll be a piece that'll unify the, the board. That's what the Word of God does, and this is what they've done. And so at this point, it pleases the whole multitude, and at that moment, watch what happens, ready? 
Who are the ones that are getting dissed? The Hebrews or the Hellenists? And the Hellenists are what? They're Greek. Greek speakers, yeah. Outside Jews, good. You're going to get an A. Nobody else passed. Okay, Ed? All right. Don't get prideful, though. The saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose. Now watch this, ready? They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they'd set before the apostles when they had prayed and laid hands on them. You know what's fascinating about these men? They're all Greek. The minority was put in the majority for the decision. You know why people don't like to put the minority in the majority for the decision? Is there's fear. But perfect love casts out all fear. He's broken down every wall. There's neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free. We're all one in Christ. They put forward the minority to oversee the distribution. And all of the Hebraic Jews were going to be cared for by the Hellenistic Jews. All these men were Greek. The only way that that happens to break down cultural barriers is that the love of Christ breaks down those walls. The body of Christ shouldn't see color. You know, they talk about microaggression nowadays where you say we're all one race. That in, in, with politically correctness, they say that's microaggression, that we would say we're all one race. The only way that they can divide us in the world is to, to, to pit us against each other based on the color of our skin or our socioeconomic class or our gender or our sexual preferences or whatever it is. They're, they're going to create minority races to divide us so that we never stand unified. When we say we're one in Christ, that's frightening to a world that tries to hold power. That's frightening to a world that tries to hold power. That we would be unified by the, by the body of Christ, by the blood of Christ, that we wouldn't see color, socioeconomic class, gender, uh, any of those things. And so they put forward seven uh, Greeks to oversee this. And then they laid hands on them and they prayed for them. And watch this, watch this, verse seven. Then the word of God spread and the number of disciples multiplied what? Greatly. Now it's not just exponential. It, it, it's great exponent. I mean, it's, it's, it's out of, they, they can't even keep track of it. It's going so quickly. They're looking and they're saying, nothing stops these people. And, and it began by pointing out that Stephen was the first guy to be picked. You know why they picked him? They go, Stephen, you are a guy that you're full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Will you wait tables? You know, every time I turn around, Ray, he's always helping some widow in the church. I, I look around the room and I can see a number of folks that I, I can pick up the phone and say, hey, can you go help me with this situation? It is a menial task. You're, you're probably, they won't give you anything. And, and the minute I call you, there's joy. And that was Stephen. Pick up the phone. Hey, will you go wait at a table? You know, you, you, you can be walking on a Sunday past somebody and say, hey, the child just threw up. I got to go preach the word. Will you clean that up? And they look at you like you're from outer space. What do you, I don't do vomit. We all do vomit. I got to go teach. Will you take care of that? Would you be insulted? And, and the idea is, Stephen, full of faith, there isn't anything beneath the servant. Servant speaks when they're spoken to, offers their opinion when they're asked. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you're a servant of all. Some people are insulted that you would ask them to do something that isn't along their gifting lines. I've been called to teach and preach. I, I don't do vomit, pastor. I'm waiting for you to die so I can take that pulpit. 
Well, maybe soon, I don't know. But we got other people that are far more equipped than you that have been serving. Stephen, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, he waits tables. So equipped, and what is he called to do? Wait tables. He hasn't even preached a sermon yet. He's going to get to preach one. It's in chapter 7. He'll get to preach one sermon. And then they're going to kill him. He's going to have one convert. One convert. You guys ever heard of Edward Kimball? Edward Kimball, not the guy that, the one-armed man. Uh, Edward Kimball. He, uh, he led D.L. Moody to Christ. Sunday school teacher, shoe salesman. D.L. Moody led a guy by the name of J. Wilbur Chapman to Christ. And uh, J. Wilbur Chapman led Billy Sunday to Christ. Billy Sunday was doing a crusade and he led a guy by the name of Mordecai Ham to the Lord. Nobody knows Mordecai Ham, although he led Billy Graham to Christ. So you have spectacular, insignificant, spectacular, insignificant, spectacular. In God's eyes, it's reversed. Spectacular, yeah, insignificant, spectacular, insignificant, spectacular. They're invisible. You don't know the Kimballs, the Mordecai Hams, the, the Wilbur Chapmans. You don't know them. But each one was significant in the eyes of God because a, a transformative work occurred by their faithfulness. Stephen had one convert. His name was Saul, he became Paul. Transformed the church as we know it. And his conversion, he gave one sermon. And Paul held the cloaks while they stoned him to death. Paul agreed to the killing. He, he agreed with it. He was actually endeared by it. When they stoned Stephen, they tied him to a post and they'd take rocks and they'd, they'd throw at their face big stones. They'd run up and hit the person tied to the post. And so they could get a real good run and throw it. They had cloaks that they wore with long sleeves and you, you know, it would clog. So you'd take off your outer garment and you, the, there'd be like a coat check guy that would hold them. And that was Paul. He'd hold the cloaks. He'd go, now go get him. Run up to Stephen, whap, and just crush his skull with this big stone. And Paul's like, yeah, here's your cloak, champ, way to go. Rub his shoulders, boom, go get him. And all the while he's watching as Stephen's face is glowing, we'll see this in chapter seven. He had one convert. And the only thing he ever did was wait tables and give one sermon. So I would just, I'd, I'd look around the room. I, we're, we're called to be disciples. Some of you can disciple by working. Everybody should be active. There's no pew potatoes in the body of Christ. You have a job to do. And I guess tonight I would ask you, what, what job are you doing? And when you do it, you do it full of the Holy Spirit. He is, he's to fill you and, and you're to be full of faith. You can, you can tell when somebody's heart is touched, when you, you walk in that door and they greet you and they give you a bulletin. And, and they, they look at that as they've been praying and they've been asking God, would, it might be the only smile that person gets all day. Maybe the person cleaning the restroom and maybe the person dis, you know, infecting the toys, whatever it is, it's the person that greets you in the parking lot. My question is, if, if you're dissatisfied with the person you met, can you change that? Because you've seen a need. God revealed a need to you. He doesn't reveal a need so you can come to me and say, you know, we have a need in the church, Pastor. I'm going to immediately turn on you and go, praise God, he's shown you. When can you get started? That's why nobody comes to me anymore. But the question is, what are you doing? For what, you're full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. What tables are you waiting? What, what job are you doing? This is a Wednesday night group. If, if, you, if, you, if you love the Lord, you come on Sunday mornings. 
if, if uh, I know, if you, if you love the church, you come on Sunday mornings. If you love the pastor, you come on Sunday nights. If you love the Lord, you come on Wednesday nights. This is Wednesday night. This, these are hardcore disciples. These are folks that are ready to invest their lives. And so the question is, what is God having you do? And you may just get one convert. You may be a, a Mordecai Ham or Kimball. And, and so that's the idea. And so at this point, because they step outside their comfort zone, they appoint um, um, the, the Hellenist Jews to oversee that the minority now oversees the majority. All of a sudden, it's multiplied greatly. You know why? Because God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. The last thing we want are people different than us ruling over us or being in charge of anything. In the body of Christ, there's no fear in respects to that. And so all of a sudden, it multiplies greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to faith. Let me add verse 7. These priests had walked into the Holy of Holies, or they'd walked into the temple after Christ had risen from the dead. And you recall the, in the last portions of each of the Gospels what happened to the veil. It was ripped from top to bottom. I mean, it went from the top all the way to the bottom. This veil had to be hung by, I think, 25 priests just to put it up there. All of them are stunned. The ground is shook. The, the dead were raised. They were walking through Jerusalem. There's a buzz of activity. And, and they're so moved that they're listening to these disciples now who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. It's growing greatly. They're losing disciples in, in, in Israel, in Jerusalem. And not only are they losing disciples, people coming to the temple, but now they're starting to lose priests. And a great many of the priests were obedient unto the faith. And then verse 8 says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Great wonders and signs among the people. Excuse me. He's probably waiting tables. He'll see somebody sick, he prays for them, and they're healed. You know, he's just wiping down tables. He'll see somebody coughing or have a cold. He'll go up and lay hands on them. They'll be healed. And, and then there arose from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilician Asia, disputing with Stephen. These are folks that are legalists. They, they pick fly poop out of pepper. They call themselves freedmen, but, but they're legalists. And they, and they want to sit down, and they, all they want to do is contemplate the lint in their belly button. They don't wait tables, and their whole job is to, 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 to occupy your time. I call them life suckers. You know, you'll, 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 a sermon will end, a sermon will end, and, and I'll be at a conference or something, and you'll see people who've been weeping and their hearts have been touched. And you come down to avail yourself to pray for them, and immediately this person just beelines in front and dominates the conversation. And they're going on and on and on about something completely irrelevant. And, and typically I'll have someone stand next to me in those situations where they can just sideline them. Because what they're doing is all of this potential ministry of people that are sobbing has just been taken by a person that just wants to dominate and, and dispute some sort of issue. And, um, you know, I had one fella do that. And I knew the minute I met him, I just had a check in my spirit about him. And, and I told him, I said, you know, let, let me just cut to the chase. I said, We're, it's, it's not going to be long before you and I come to odds. Um, you're divisive, and I, 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 just, I just don't think you're going to be happy here. And I didn't see him the next week while I was at a Kiwanis meeting, and Randy Senzig, who is the security guard over at Calvary Community, came up, and he said, Rob, I want to show you a bulletin in case you want to give this to some of your ushers. And he shows me a picture of this guy, and he's got, and I, I go, yeah, I just kicked him out last week. I didn't kick him out. I encouraged him to go, blessed, so sing with me, distraction. 
And Randy says, really? I said, yeah, I didn't. He goes, well, we had to go through committee. And I said, well, yeah, I just saw it and told him to go. Um, and, and so you'll have those folks that'll sideline you. And that's what these, Alexa- these, these uh, they're called the synagogue of the freedmen. And they're anything but free. They're legalists. And they're, they're disputing with Stephen. All they, all they want to do is they want to talk about the difference between Arminianism and Calvinism. Let me help you. If you're a Calvinist, welcome to Calvary Chapel. We're not. And if you enjoy the worship, great. If you enjoy the, but we're, we're never going to be Calvinist. And if you start proselytizing and making that an issue, and one of the reasons why hyper-Calvinists, not all Calvinists, I'm saying hyper-Calvinists come fishing in Calvary Chapel's ponds is because hyper-Calvinism has no realm for evangelism. You're, you're either chosen or you're not. You're the elect or you're not. And, and, and this idea of evangelizing, you, as, a, as a hyper-Calvinist, you can't say God loves you and has a plan for your life. You can't say that. Because that's not true from a hyper-Calvinist point of view. Christ's death on the cross was limited atonement, limited for only those that he's elected. And you can't say to the world that God loves you. They struggle with John 3.16, for God so loved the world that they, they do this unbelievable backflip to try to accommodate the passage. So I don't mind anyone that has a Calvinist position, but if hyper-Calvinism comes to try to divide the church, I have to address it. And I just look and I say, why are you here? I, you know what we stand for. We, we've even printed it in, in our website. Everything depicts on who we are. And, and you're here for reasons that, that aren't real genuine. You gotta go. And, and we agree that we disagree. We're, we're part of the body of Christ. And you're gonna get fringe movements. And you're gonna get folks that'll try to divide. You're gonna have folks that'll come in and, and wanna dispute the giftings of the Holy Spirit. You're gonna have... And, and this, is, this, is, this is that synagogue of the freedmen. They are folks that are going to waste your time and exhaust the body of Christ. So we can't be about God's business. They're going to dominate the prayer services. They're going to dominate every aspect of, and, and it's just, it's, it, there, there isn't going to be a tenderness. It's just going to be that way. And so here uh, they're disputing with Stephen. This is a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and they beeline to him. And, and you find these time wasters coming right to the area where there's a tenderness of what God's doing. And they weren't able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. There was just wisdom in what he said. And his spirit was genuine. He didn't have a burden to him. He just said, hey, this is not going to work. You know, Lord bless you. Just move on your way. I remember one guy in particular came and uh, he said, I need money for my teeth. I said, well, get, tell me. Uh, no, I was with Don McClure. He didn't say it to me. I was with Don McClure, my pastor. And I, this guy, I said, Don, the guy needs dental work. He says, okay. The guy comes up and he says, yeah, I need dental work, man. I said, he goes, okay. He says, give me your dentist. I'll call him and we'll set it up. Uh, I don't have a dentist. All right. Well, um, let's get you set up to go see a dentist. Ah, man. And it wasn't a dentist. He just wanted money. It doesn't take long to push into the realm to find the truth, but it requires wisdom. It requires discernment. It requires understanding. And, and I got to tell you, that's the hardest part is sifting through deception appearing to be something that you aren't and it it exhausts the body of christ if some of you are gifted at that i can't tell you how how much of a blessing that would be in the body of christ i remember rob orth was so good at that he'd worked at the salvation army he'd worked with a number of rescue missions where you can just pinpoint it right away You, you can you can see it a mile away and and you can ask the right questions 
And some of you have those giftings. Let the Lord use you in that regard. So he, he spoke and they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they, they couldn't contend with Stephen, so they run around the back way. What they're trying to do is infiltrate the church and break what God is trying to do or what God is accomplishing in the lives of these folks. And it's exponentially growing and the problems are going to grow with it. And so these people are trying to divide. And they secretly induce. What is that? Murmuring. It's deceptive. You have to do it in secret. And by the way, let me just tell you, if you're having a conversation about somebody else and they're not present and it adversely affects them, their character, their family or anything, you are murmuring. Amen? Now, I'm guilty of it and so are you. Amen? Well, that was not very hearty. He left me hanging. Can I get an amen? The idea to allow the body of Christ to be sensitive is to, is to check yourself. I'm neither the solution nor am I the problem. And I, I'm not, I, so I just need to back out of it. Because people's lives are involved. Oftentimes, we feel as though we can say something about somebody, it positions us better. I used to see that when I was a young guy on staff. And, and you, you couch it in Christian terms to diss the other person on staff to push yourself forward. And, and I look for guys on staff that they never say anything bad about anybody. You, you push them and go, well, they won't, you, you, you have to pull teeth to try them to get to say anything. And they won't. They just won't do it. The, the staff right now, I have never experienced a better staff in the history of any church I've ever been a part of, including the way I served Don McClure. This staff serves me better than I've ever served any pastor I've been under and, and serves a fellowship. There's no murmuring, no complaining. If there is, they are really good at keeping it quiet. And if they're expecting a coup or whatever, they deserve it because they, I don't know how they pulled it off, but they're good. But that's the idea is there's this unity and, and, and you're protecting each other's character. Love hopes all things. You give everyone the benefit of the doubt. If someone is saying something, say, you know, I know that person to be a, a genuine person. Why don't you come with me? We'll go talk to them together. You know what they're going to do? Oh, no, no, I don't want to talk. Well, then you need to stop talking about them. And the things that you said, we need to address at least that. That'll shut it down immediately. Don't engage it. Don't entertain it. And it'll die. And if any of these, these uh, synagogue of the freedmen come in and try to, you know, secretly induce you to participate, just shut it down. That's, that's a mature believer, to just be able to kill it. Um, verse 12, I'll go through 15 and we'll call it a night. Verse 12, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the Holy Spirit and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all sat in the council looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Stephen doesn't have a, a mean bone in his body, but he's going to give him a sermon that's going to blow him away. And, and this, is, this is a genuine, spirit-filled man who is being falsely accused, and everybody knows it. And he's just up there, and, you know, and everything they're saying about him, the problem is there's, there was at one point 8,118 people that loved him. And, and then that multiplied, so there's probably, you know, 16,000. And now it's multiplied greatly, so we have no idea at this point how many believers there are. 
And they all know about Stephen. And this is a man who the entire multitude picked to wait those tables. This is a man that waited those tables so significantly that, that he was renowned with his faith of these great works that he did, the wonders and signs among those people. And now these, these uh, synagogue of the freedmen, these legalists that, that are angry because the church is growing and, and Stephen has something that they've never possessed with all of their intellectual prowess and they've tried to dispute and they can't argue with him and it seems like everything he does just shuts them down finally they just want him dead they want him dead so what do they do they secretly induce others outside the faith to go and shut him down and they they take the political process they can't shut the church down so they're going to politically try to shut him down so they go into the political forces and they, they bring in the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the elders and the scribes. These are all political appointments. And now they're going to kill him. And as they bring him forward and they lie and they put up false witnesses, they do anything they can to accomplish what it is they want to do. You know, oftentimes I, I hear people say they're good people with bad ideas. And I would say in my experience, my short term in politics, there are good people with bad ideas. But there are times that there are bad ideas put forward by very evil people and they know exactly what they're doing. Now they've, they've got a multitude deceived, but you find the source and you can see. When you're seeing now this videotape coming out right there in San Jose, California of a Planned Parenthood where they take a full late-term child, a boy, whose heart is still beating and they cut the child's face to remove the brain. Whoever, whoever designed that and convinced these people, that person, you go all the way back, follow this, especially young people who think Planned Parenthood is amazing. I want you to do the history of Planned Parenthood, where it came from. Anyone ever heard of Margaret Sanger? She was a eugenicist. She wanted to get rid of the undesirable races. Blacks and Hispanics and, and Asians. She, she was a racist. She was a eugenicist. She wanted to go into the inner cities of America and wipe out these races. This is where Planned Parenthood came from. Margaret Sanger is the founder. When you have a system that cuts the face of a baby whose heart is still beating to remove an intact brain to sell it, the, wherever that came from is dark. Now, the woman who witnessed it had been deceived because she had been raised in a high school and heard that Planned Parenthood is looking out for the rights of women and it's a woman's right to choose and, and they had laid it out so profoundly. And they, You know the fastest growing segment of the pro-life movement is 18 to 35-year-olds because now we have three-dimensional ultrasound with color and these kids aren't stupid. They're going, that's, that's not a blob of tissue, that's a baby. My generation, we didn't have ultrasound. We bought it hook, line, and sinker. Oh, oh yeah, it's a blob of tissue. You're right, it's a woman's right to choose. You're absolutely right. And you, and you look at that and you say, well, where does, that, where does that emanate from? I've come that they might have life. And life more abundant. Who's the author of life? Who takes life? Well, you've done unto the least of these you've done unto me. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. You follow it all the way back and you're going to find somebody at the heart of darkness. And the author of lies. And, and they... They, they mix a little truth with a lot, of, or they mix a lot of truth with a little, little lie. 
If you're off just one degree and you're leaving Los Angeles for Hawaii and you're just off one degree, you'll miss it by 500 miles. Over time, it just sets an entire culture astray and 55 million babies are dead. You see, it's not a baby. Why isn't it a baby? Why isn't it a baby? A sperm and an egg come together, creates a zygote. Why isn't it a baby? It's too small? Is that why? Because it's too small? So you're telling me a smaller person is less valuable than a larger person? Well, it's dependent upon its mother. Oh, okay. So you're telling me someone dependent on oxygen is less valuable than someone who's not? Well, it's its environment. It's in its mother's womb. So you're, so you're telling me that somebody who's, who's uh, in Newberry Park is less valuable than somebody who's in Simi Valley or Oxnard? The environment? It's its level of development. It's not fully developed. So an adolescent is less valuable than a fully grown adult? It doesn't make any sense. It's a baby. It can't be anything else. It's, a, it's not a baby zebra. It's not a baby giraffe. It's a baby. It's a human baby. The Bible says the child's been fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in its mother's womb. Every high school student has to put together the DNA. It's a knitting pattern. Have you noticed that? You've been knitted together in your mother's womb. Everything in that DNA pattern is everything you need to be who you are today. The uniqueness of who you are is all found in that DNA pattern. But we have convinced an entire generation of people that's not a baby. And now we sell the parts of the children We sell them. And good people do bad things, and they're deceived. But when you know the truth, and the truth has set you free, you're accountable. You can't say, I didn't know. When the, when the, when the Germans would go out and dust the ashes off their cars from the crematoriums, they knew. They knew. We know. And so, I got news for you. You stand in opposition and you speak the truth to that kind of power. Stephen is about to stand up in front of the scribes and the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. He's about to stand up in front of all the chief priests. There's going to be 75 people in a stadium and he's going to be at the bottom and they're going to be looking down at him from the dais of importance all in their black robes like judges in the Supreme Court. And he is going to to speak truth to that power. And they are going to be so angry that they will rip their clothes and gnash their teeth and they will kill him. You want to unleash a storm? You go to the heart of the power. You know why abortion is so protected in America? Because it is really lucrative. You make a lot of money in abortion. And you push it, you'll get to the heart of the darkness. And, and, and you take it further and you find out where it came from. Well, this is exactly what's going to happen next week. Stephen is going to go right into the den of evil. And he's going to speak truth. And it's the last sermon he's ever going to give. And that sermon will transform the known world. And in the short span of his life as a Christian, he was more effective than most people in the entirety of theirs. One man gets converted and the whole world is turned right side up because he had guts.